over the last month, in October, we've been doing this in trust series. And this is the second year in a row that we've done it. And you guys have heard myself, a couple other men come up and, and teach. And the reason we do that is Paul entrusted the teaching. In his letter to Timothy, he said in Timothy 2.2, 2, he said, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's the key. Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And Paul installed Timothy as one of the leaders in the early church. And this was basically, he says, one of your jobs, you're not just preaching. You're building up other guys. You're building up other men who can know the word, who can love the word, and who can teach the word. We think, oh, you know, that's the pastor's job. And it's not just for the guy in the pulpit. It's for all Christian men. Now, it's not something that a lot of people will do as a profession. There's a lot of people, for whatever reason, because of temperament or giftings, they're not ever going to be a public speaker, and that's fine. That's normal. But all men who follow Christ should have some ability to teach the Word to those under their care, especially those in their family, right? That's your first mission field. That's your first area of influence. And elders who do this on a regular basis are commanded in, in Peter to lead by example. So you can't have an example without someone to follow the example. Uh, what they do should be emulated. First Peter 5, 2 and 3 says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, and not domineering over those in your, in your charge, but being examples to the flock. He says, those of you who would be elders or teachers, be examples to the flock. So you get this idea that our duty in the church is to think generationally. So we're not just doing something um, and then going home. If we do that, it'll end when we're done, right? When I... If you had a preacher and he preached his whole life and he didn't teach anyone else to preach and then he retired, that'd be the end of it. We're supposed to think generationally. We're supposed to pass God's laws and statutes to the next generation of believers. So his blueprint for life, right? his commands and everything we find in the word, the gospel, it has to be taught to future generations in every nation. And it has to be taught to people who are going to then go teach it, right? We're teaching teachers. And in the body of Christ, we're all ministers to some degree. This is not just something that, it's not an event. I think I've said this a couple times. It's not just an event you go to. I'm going to sit and I'm going to go to this thing because it makes me socially acceptable or, you know, maybe not anymore, right? But it's not just an event. It's something we do as a way of life. In uh, 2022, last year, uh, men in this church taught through Second Timothy and you guys, if you want to listen to those, those messages, they're on the website at vineandbranch.family. In this year's Entrust series, we've taught through Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And he wrote this letter with Timothy, who was his, his trainee. And he was kind of his assistant. And what I'm going to do is start with a recap, and then we're going to read chapter 4 and learn what chapter 4 has for us. 
in the first weekend, uh, the first Sunday of October, uh, Rob taught through chapter one. And in chapter one, we learn about what the theme of this whole book is, right? Paul starts off in his letter by rejoicing over the growth of the Colossian church. Through their example, as outlined by Paul, we learn that when the gospel is heard and believed in faith, it always bears fruit. When the gospel is heard and believed by faith, it always bears fruit. And we learn this in chapter one. In other words, when fruit is evident, we have proof of genuine faith. And this reminds us all of our study in James a few months back, right? The evidence of faith will always come out in our actions. Theology comes out your fingertips. What we believe is acted upon. If we don't act on something we believe, do we really believe it? Not that much. Colossians is a book that exalts Christ as the preeminent one. In other words, as the center of everything. Paul's theme is that Christ is all and is in all from chapter 3. Jesus is God himself in bodily form, by which all things were made. And he doesn't stop there. Christ is also the one who is solely responsible for our salvation and continued sanctification, which means getting better over time. As Rob said, he is the only one properly positioned, authoritative, and qualified to make peace by the blood of his cross. So it's Christ alone, it's in Christ alone, that we can have our salvation and our continued anchor in life. By Him, we can live as as if we are dead to sin, regardless of our feelings, regardless of our circumstances or perspective. So the theme of preeminence in chapter 1 sets the foundation for the whole letter to the Colossians. And then in chapter 2... Nick taught us in the second week of October that Paul lays out that maturity should be a visible fruit of every Christian. And it's worth the price of his own suffering to bring his readers to greater maturity. Paul endured much hardship to build up these early believers in Christ, and he wrote the letter from prison. Paul was in chains in prison, and it wasn't your minimum security modern American prison. It It was like a real prison with chains and like stone walls and such. He suffered a lot to bring this early... Christian church to maturity. So maturity in the Christian life is founded solely on God and his work. And it requires us to fully have our identity in him. And it requires that we forsake, we avoid, and we put off all distortions or these add-ons to the foundation of the gospel. So Christian maturity is a life lived in wisdom in these things. And thankfulness in the gospel because it is sufficient. It includes being able to discern good and evil. It's putting on the attributes of Christ like compassion, kindness, and humility. Meekness, a a readiness to forgive one another, and above all, love. Mature believers should hang on steadfastly to the gospel, steadfastly to God's truth and steadfastly to Christ. We need to ask God for wisdom and always abound in patience with others as we are all growing together in Christ towards this maturity. That really stood out to me from Nick's sermon on this, in the second week of October. We need to be patient with one another because we're all not in the same place, and that's fine. I could look over at somebody and be like, well, they're still 
this or they're still that. Well, we don't know where they are on this continuum of sanctification. That person may have been saved yesterday. Christ will work sanctification in our lives over time and at his own pace and in his own order. It's amazing. We've all seen it happen. That is true. So maturity is not developed in an instant, but it takes time as we are changed by the gospel. So, and then in week three, we learned that we are commanded to set our minds on things above. We're to set our minds on this higher reality, and it is a reality, and to keep our minds from dwelling on things of the earth, the lower reality. Because of the work Christ has done, because we are raised with him and our lives are hidden or protected or kept secure in Christ, we are commanded to put on the attributes of Christ and get this body of Christ mindset, things above where Christ is. It's the body of Christ that we are members of. He urges us in chapter 3 to put off the old self with, with all of the worldly passions and desires that we had before we became believers and that still plague us. And we learn that we should pursue in this way. We're pursuing sanctification. We're pursuing getting better in our faithfulness and in our following of Christ over time. So through the power that uh, we get from him, this is not possible outside of Christ. You can't just come to a random unbeliever on the street and say, hey, are you getting better over time? Well, he may be able to to, uh, fake it for a couple days, but this is only possible because of Christ. Why? Because Christ is preeminent, and that's the theme of this book. That's the theme of Colossians. Because he's preeminent in all things... We, as the body, we can't be fragmented. And so we're, we're to operate in unity as the church, as the body of Christ. That way we can do Christ's work to build his kingdom on earth. So after putting off the old ways, we must be patient with one another. Again, it comes back to that. We must be properly meek and humble and we put the needs of each other above our own. And we must always be thankful. This is a picture of life in a church in the global church, and also in our, in our local churches. That was chapter 3. And then Kevin gave us the message in chapter 4. Paul went from this general church. This is Christ is preeminent, and this is how we act as his body on earth. And he went from general instructions to close-up specifics in the life of a Christian household. So what we learned, we learned that to image Christ is to embrace and live God's proper order for us. So after the fall, when all of humanity became corrupted and sinful, we were perfect before that, God redeemed us to himself through Jesus' work on the cross. And by this, we participate and are brought into God's family because Jesus paid our sin debt. It's now possible to be in God's family. So now the relationship between Christ and the church can be put on display through the relationship between a husband and a wife and his family. This is a picture of Christ and his church. And so this is by, by having a properly ordered household, as, as the Bible teaches us, we can better image the relationship between Christ and his church to the world. As believers mature, obedience to this divine order will grow and become more and more evident in our lives. The good fruit of God's design will become visible. It will become visible and obvious in our lives. We have learned that fathers are the leaders of their households, whether or not they lead well. And that leadership to to fathers is given 
not earned. This given, not earned, that really stood out to me. We learned that God's design for wives is to model the church in its relationship to Christ in submission to the husbands. And we learned that husbands are not to be harsh with their wives or exasperate their children in an effort to grasp for unearned respect and authority in a way that's like fruitless desperation, right? We learned that as it's not going to work. It's the wrong way to go about that. We learned that we should make every attempt to honor God's design in our interactions, even with other households, our households, and in other households. And we're looking at a picture of the church and the church body in that. Now I'm going to read chapter 4, and then we'll get started with this. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians 4, and I'm going to start in verse 2. It says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Verse 5, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychius will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant of the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and how, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him is Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, and who is one of you. They will tell you everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nymphia and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans. And see also, see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And to Archippus, say, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. These are the words of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank that you could bring us here together, that you designed and built the church, and you, you have brought each one of us to this room today because nothing happens by accident, and you want us to hear your word. And so, Lord, I ask that my words would be clear, and the words that I speak from this book, would go out and touch the hearts of people in exactly the ways that you want that to happen today. In your name we pray. Amen. Chapter 4. So in this closing chapter of Colossians, as we just read, we're presented with this picture 
this beautiful beautiful picture of life within the body of Christ. Paul's last few instructions and final greetings show how we can glorify Christ, build one another up, and put his attributes on display in our church community. In keeping with the overall theme of the preeminence of Christ, we see Jesus clearly at the center of his mission, of the mission, interactions, and fellowship of this Christian community that we're learning about. These believers are called to emulate Christ's character and to make him known in the world. So, Christ as preeminent is not just a mere theological concept for us to think about or ponder. It's a practical and lived-out reality in the church. The life that we have comes from Christ. And without him, we would be lost. His life flows into the church, and when it does, it builds up the body. It allows us to display his love and care for one another. We should be praying for the advancement of the clear, pure gospel. And we should make wise choices and have gracious words in our interactions with outsiders. And that that will result in building up the growth of Christ's kingdom on earth. And so when he, he concludes with a series of examples that we're going to get into of all these, this list of all these names, these faithful individuals, and how they are participating and how they embody the church. So he starts in prayer, verse 1. Sorry, verse 2. So we have to remember that Paul's thankfulness for the Colossian believers back in chapter 1, he was praying and he demonstrates this by example. He demonstrates a body of Christ mindset in his prayers for the church and had this loving and relational and endearing manner full of gratitude. And if I go back and read verse 3 from chapter 1, it says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We always thank God when we pray for you. And so in these remaining chapters, in 2, 3, and 4, Paul continues to, to encourage and tell these, these Colossian believers that, hey, you need to be thankful. You need to be grateful. This is like a woven thread that goes through this whole letter. And from this, we can learn and we can know that gratitude really is a key. really is key to life and faith. It's, it's a key to life in the church. It's not just important. It's vital. It's critical. And without it, our focus is not on the gospel and it's not on Christ. Gratitude's role in building up the body to greater and greater unity, it cannot be overstated. Every single chapter has commands to be thankful. And some have multiple. And who are we thankful to? Well, we're thankful to God the Father, from which all pure and good things come. God gets the glory. So, let's look at verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That's an interesting way to phrase that. Watchfulness, what does that mean? So here, the Greek word used there, it's keeping alert. It's not just looking at something. It's staying alert. It's vigilance. Think about it like a, uh, like a watchman on the wall. He's paying close attention. It's watching and focusing on not having idleness or guarding against laziness. It's giving strict attention to. It's, it's taking care, great care, to not let something fall away, in this case, prayer. It's being diligent, being watchful in prayer, 
is being diligent and um, paying attention not to stop. So there's three parts to this watchful, thankful prayer. There's persistence, right, or diligence. And there's this there's cheerful willingness, and there's much gratitude. There's thanksgiving. And so why is, why is he merging prayer and thanksgiving? It's not just a call to simple, weak prayers. Paul has woven in this, this thread of thanksgiving that's in this whole book into, into prayer. And it's, this kind of prayer is intent. It's, it's wrapped in paying attention in this watchfulness. It's thankful, intent prayer. And as we say around here, you would call it intentional. It, it's intentional prayer. It's layered and it's not just blurting out the simplest thing that you can think of. It's like a steak wrapped in bacon. This is prayer that's like a steak wrapped in bacon. It's a type of continuous loving prayer that's a benefit to one another. And it's a part of belonging in the body of Christ. And it's something that we're supposed to listen to and emulate what's written here. So within the body, the church, the body of Christ, close attention is paid to one another. That's one of the benefits of being in this. Close attention is paid through prayer. And in this thankful prayer, we build this unity. We build this connection. So close relationships are fostered. Gratitude is always expressed. And all members are thereby drawn together in greater and greater unity. And it's Christ who builds up the church in love. A prayer of this type for one another is critical. It's necessary, and it's only made possible uh, through Christ. And when gratitude is added, think about it. When gratitude and thankfulness is added to prayer, it becomes something that you can sustain. Without that, how can you sustain it? it it's something. It's a kind of prayer that you could keep going with joy because you're thankful. When I pray for somebody, man, there's a lot of things to be thankful for. The charge here is to weave this thankfulness into our prayers for one another. Um, one commentator says, prayer has many parts, and an important part of prayer is praise and worship and thanksgiving. A minor part of prayer would be like petition, requests. And Spurgeon said, he had this great description. He said, let me observe that there are three ex- exhortations in the text connected with prayer. The first is continue. The second is watch. And the third would be to give thanks. Continuance sits like Moses upon the top of a hill while watching in thanksgiving like Aaron and her hold up his hands. You guys remember that story? If you remember the story, Moses, and, uh, after the Israelites came out of Egypt, they had all these battles and they started running into other, other tribes and things. And in one of these battles, there was this point where Moses was at, at the top of this mountain watching this battle and he had to hold up his hands or he had his staff and if he would lower his arms, the enemy would start to win. If he held his arms up, they would continue to win. And so that's the thing. And as the day grew long, of course, his, his arms got tired. And uh, his, his brother Aaron and this other guy named Hur, they had to help hold his arms up so that they could have victory. Continuance sits like Moses on the top of the hill while watching and thanksgiving like Aaron and her hold up his hands. And so and that's the point of this is being thankful in prayer helps you to keep right. And uh, it, this book is full of commands to be thankful.
So, Paul next specifically asks for opportunities to spread the gospel. And he asks for clarity of speech as he does it. And so if you remember, Paul's mission was to bring the mystery of Christ to the Gentile world. That was his job. Before then, it was all brand new. The Jews had had Christ. They rejected him. He said, I, you know, he got his command from the Lord to go take this news to the world. And that's what he was doing. And so he's asking for prayer. In verse 2, he says, at the same time, pray also for us, meaning him and his, his compatriots, the guys who went around with him, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. That I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And remember we said earlier that everybody should be able to know the word and to teach it to those underneath them. And uh, this is one thing that we, we should know how to speak and we should know how to speak clearly. Paul's goal and ours is to make the news of Christ's gospel known to the world in a way that people can actually understand it, right? We're not, we don't need to use fancy words. We need to make sure that people understand the good news because they don't have hope and they need hope. They need hope. Remember the theme of this whole letter. Christ is preeminent, and there's no better news than that that any person can have anywhere on the planet at any time. Christ is preeminent over the power of sin and death under which we all suffer. It's only in Christ that doom can be averted in everybody's lives. It's only in Christ. This is why this is so important to be clear. By this example, we should remember to pray for those who work at preaching and teaching. Um, As we work for Christ in that way, we need to pray that God would make his word go to where it's supposed to go and that it would be clear and understood. This is why we pray every Sunday, for the Holy Spirit to drive his word deep into our hearts. This is something we say in this church, and that's the reason. Thankful prayer. Remember, it's prayer with thankfulness, like steak-wrapped bacon. So let's go uh, down to verse 5. He says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It's interesting. So he shifts gears. Now we're talking about interactions with people outside the church, right? With outsiders, people who aren't believers. They're not in the body of Christ. What are we to make of this? Well, given the theme of this book, the foundation we are laid out in chapter 1 of Christ's preeminence, we are to conduct ourselves in such a way that glorifies Christ. Using our minds, right, act in wisdom, our thoughts, and our full intelligence. With outsiders, interactions will look different from those of us inside the church. We're coming from two different directions. And making the best use of our time is a call to be intentional. Making the best use of our time means we need to be intentional in our interactions. Instead of going blindly about our business. You know what I mean, right? Have you guys ever been out shopping or whatever, and your head is down, you're just checking off your list, you get home and you don't even remember what happened. That's not the call for us here. It's not the call. If Christ is preeminent, then he's got a plan and a purpose for all of those people that we run into. 
the guy at the checkout, the guy behind you in the line, you know, the, the car in front of you at the, who won't go when the light turns green. God's got a plan for that guy. And we need to remember, he is preeminent, and he rules them all. They will bow the knee to Christ. And so when you're in a checkout line, use your full intelligence here, right? Act in wisdom. Pay attention to these people around you. And I know people that do this, extroverts do this. Something extroverts do, I've heard. I've witnessed it. I know some extroverts in this room. Um, <laughs> they're, they're really good at that. So you introverts, this is going to be a struggle, uh, like, like it is for me. But we need to glorify God in our actions and our speech. And in these interactions, we're called to be graceful, graceful in speech, and to use seasoning, like salt, in our speech. So what does this mean? That means your words shouldn't clatter out of your mouth like a box of dry noodles. It should hit them in the face like the warm smell of chicken parmesan freshly coming out of the oven. Which one do you want, right? Which one glorifies Christ? The chicken parmesan. That's what I'm saying. Makes me hungry. Proverbs 25.11 captures this perfectly. It says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. A word fitly spoken is like golden apples on a silver plate. This is a call to speech, an interaction that goes way beyond being nice. This goes way beyond that. So who do we represent, right? I mean, what's, what's the reason? What's the purpose? Well, because Christ is preeminent, and we represent Christ to the world. Who do we want to glorify? We want to glorify Jesus. Do we mumble, or do we communicate well or clearly? Which one glorifies Christ? Do we ramble or do we stay on topic, right? Do we stare at our phone or do we look, do we put our phone in our pocket and say, thank you very much, how are you doing today? Do we engage them or do we just stare at the floor? And you guys know what I'm talking about. In Christ, we can better image the Heavenly Father. In Christ, we can better image the Heavenly Father, which is what we were designed to do from the beginning of the world until the fall messed that up. Um, so we have to use wisdom in what we say, and we have to improve. Think about it this way. When you come into a room or we come into interaction, you want to improve that space. You want to improve the mood of those people in there. You want to come in with a smile, and you want to come in cracking jokes and see, see if you can get that grumpy cashier to smile because you're representing Christ. Christ is the glorious one. So... We are his hands and feet, right? Um, and sometimes we are his mouth. So go out and represent Christ. So take his image. By doing this, we take his image to the world. And remember, he's the source. He's the source of all hope, all joy. He's the source of all peace and comfort. Without him, they do not have those things. And he's the source of all salvation. And they need to see that in you. They need to see Christ in you. This is the call that Paul is giving the Colossian church and us by extension. So let's move on to this last section. Um, Some of your Bibles have this heading, Final Greetings. And what's Final Greetings? Final Greetings. It's it's full of names. And when I read this list full of names, I feel like I I picked up a letter off the ground and it's not for me. It's talking about people that I don't know and things. I'm not sure of the details. This is sort of, it's easy to gloss 
over this kind of final chapter, final few verses in a, in a book, right? You guys have all read that, and it's like, oh, here's, here's some teaching, here's some teaching. Then it's like, ah, final, final great uh, people. People did things. Some great people in there. But we should take a closer look because God did choose to put this in the Bible. So let's see what we can find out about this and see what it can teach us. So what we have is like a picture of real life in the church. It's a picture. It's like a slice of life of, of a sort, and it reveals these interactions. It reveals these relationships. It reveals life in the church. There's details. There's activities. There's other places. There's all kinds of things going on here. Um, since Second Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We don't want to skip over this, right? We don't want to skip over it. So here's the list. Here's the list. We got this Tychius guy, right? Beloved brother, fellow servant in the Lord, who brings news and encouragement. That could be one of us. I know people like that. We got this Onesimus, faithful and beloved brother. He's one of the Colossian Christians, so he's one of the people who belong to the group who's getting this letter. He's another guy that brings news, right? He brings news. We got this Aristarchus guy. He's a fellow prisoner of Paul. And some people think he was either in jail, and others, other um, historians think that he was just with Paul everywhere he went, and he would camp out outside the jail and help him whenever he needed help. Then we've got Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, specifically a guy that to be welcomed, right? Then we got this Jesus, also called Justice. What's that about? Well, Jesus was a common name in those days. And this is why this is why our Lord was usually called Jesus of Nazareth. That's like saying, you know, Smith of West Brown County. It was to distinguish him from all the other little boys around there that were named Jesus. So the Hebrew name for Joshua or is Yeshua or, or Joshua, and the Greek version of that is Jesus, and that's why this was a common name. So here's another one in the Bible who is a member of their uh, brotherhood, also known as Justice. Now, going down the list, Paul names some Jewish Christians who he calls members of the circumcision party. And despite their hang-ups about the new Gentile Christians needing to have the circumcision thing done from the old Old Testament law, he says, here's what he says about them. He says, they were fellow workers for the kingdom and a comfort to other believers. That's good. Then there's Epaphras, right? A servant of Jesus. He's another Colossian believer. And Epaphras was one who, who works hard and struggles for them in his prayers, specifically praying for the believers to be mature. There's Christians mentioned in Laodicea and Hierapolis. There's Luke the physician, and we know him because he wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts as well. And he traveled extensively with Paul and wrote everything down, and he documented it. And then there was this guy named Demas, and he's a man who later falls away from the faith, as Paul mentions in Second Timothy. There was this woman named Nymphia who hosted a house church, who was a, um, a host and hosted gatherings in her house. And lastly, there was this guy named Archippus who had received some kind of a ministry from the Lord. So looking at this list, so what do we see? We see beloved brothers. We see fellow servants. We see people who bring news and encouragement. We see faithful men and women. We see people who join us in suffering. We see guys with common names 
so common that you're not sure which one you're talking about at first, right, Dan? <laughs> fellow, we see fellow believers who, although they have some legalistic hang-ups, they work hard and comfort others, right? That's interesting. Although they have legalistic hang-ups, they're working hard and for the cause of Christ and comforting each other. Um, we have those who labor hard in prayer, laboring hard in prayer for others, and specifically that, that the Christian body would become more mature. We have Christians mentioned in the next town over. We have people who open up their home, um, like this woman did, and have church events and hospitality. There's those of, those of you in this room who do that. We have, these, we have these other guys with these side ministries that you may or may not know about. And there's people in here that do that. We have teachers, we have preachers, and we have writers. And even in some cases, we may have a small number of folks like Demas who fell away and started to love the world. So what kind of a picture does this paint? If you ever find yourself in an art museum and you walk up to a pointillist painting, you all know what a pointillist painting is? It's maybe by Van Gogh or Seurat. Those are the, famous, the two famous guys. And so you see that a, a painting of this type is made of a large swath of tiny dots of paint. Tiny dots of paint. And if you walk up to that thing with your nose on the canvas, all you can see is, is these small individual dots of color. Right? These are little blobs of paint. But as you step back from a painting of this type, you increase your distance and the overall picture starts to come together. And so in studying this, What's the overall picture? In Paul's final greeting, we have these people mentioned who are like these little spots of paint. And each believer is represented with just a little detail. What they did, who they knew, and what they thought was important, how hard they prayed, how many miles they traveled. Each one is a whole complex human being with a whole life, with relatives, with a job, that God knew inside and out, and they were included in this little dot of detail in this passage. Christ had called each one of these people into his body. These people were Christians. They were part of the body of Christ. So what are the patterns that come into view as you lean back from this canvas? We see interconnected love. We see generosity of time and effort. We see thankfulness everywhere. We see prayer. We see laboring on behalf of each other. We see imperfections, right? We see much thankfulness. We see travel, connecting people from different places. We see shared news. We see shared sorrows and shared joy. What do we see? We see the church. We see vine and branch. And if you lean back all the way from this painting... You see Christ, the body of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're glad to be here in your body, which is wonderful. We thank you for this example. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness and your power. We thank you that you hold us securely in the palm of your hand. And Jesus, we thank you for bringing us into this body, complete with imperfections and hang so that we will not be able to boast, so that all the work and all the credit, uh, all the credit for all the work goes to you. We thank you that our lives are hidden in you, that we're protected in you as believers. We thank you for the power of the gospel, 
that works in us to change us. And we think that you get glory for that when that change happens. And we've seen it. We think that you're working us towards full maturity. And you're heading us towards heaven. Where our eventual uh, imperfections will be lost and left behind. And we do look forward to that day. Help us set our minds on things above, Lord, and not on things of this earth. Give us the body of Christ's mindset. Lord, help us to work in unity as a team for your goals and your glory. Instead of isolating ourselves in the cares of this world, Lord, help us above all give love for one another and help us to be always thankful. Help us to order our lives around your design, around your laws, around your ways and your statutes so that you might be made visible to the world through us for your glory and our joy. Amen.